prepare to enter a realm where the extraordinary meets the unexplained, where truth is stranger than fiction, where conspiracy theories, paranormal encounters, and the unexplained collide. We'll dive headfirst into the abyss as we shed light on the secrets that have eluded us for far too long. You'll question reality as we explore the blurred line between fact and fiction. With each episode, we'll challenge what you think you know, leaving no stone unturned in our quest for answers. Welcome, my friends, to The Veiled Chronicles, a journey into the unknown and sometimes unexplained. And I'm your host, Adam Walker. And welcome to another episode of The Veiled Chronicles, where the shrouded tales of yesteryear come to life. I'm Adam Walker, and I'll be your navigator on this journey through the mists of time. So close your eyes and imagine a world where the boundaries between gods and mortals are blurred, where ancient whispers tell tales of creation, divine wrath, and humanity's undying spirit. Today we peel back the veil on an epic so ancient, it whispers the secrets that even the sands of time have forgotten. A story that predates the Bible by some several hundred centuries and echoes through the annals of history. Picture this. A world overwhelmed by the cacophony of human voices, where the gods, driven to the brink of madness, unleash calamities to silence the earth. But amidst the chaos, one man stands tall, a beacon of wisdom and hope for all humanity. His name is Atrahasis, and his destiny is entwined with the gods themselves. The Atrahasis epic is a Mesopotamian masterpiece that's going to take us on a roller coaster ride of emotions and adventure, with divine plots, ancient secrets, and a catastrophic flood that threatens to wipe out humanity. This epic has it all. The echoes of the Atrahasis tale ripple through stories that you've known for years. Ever heard of Noah's Ark? Well, the seeds were sown right here. So fasten your seatbelts as we set sail on these tumultuous waters with Atrahasis, deciphering the cryptic cuneiform tablets and unveiling a world that has waited eons to be discovered. Atrahasis, or the Epic of Atrahasis, is the poetic narrative that originated in ancient Mesopotamia, specifically in the region of Sumer, around 1800 BCE. Now, for those of you that might be new to this podcast, or to ancient history itself, Sumer was an ancient civilization located in the southern part of Mesopotamia, which is in present-day southern Iraq. It occupied the region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and is often referred to as the Cradle of Civilization. When speaking of ancient history, it's important to understand how dates work. So I'll take a few minutes to explain that to some of our new listeners, so that you'll know exactly what we mean when we say things like 1800 BCE. I want you to draw an imaginary line, or a real line for that matter, a line of any length. Now, somewhere around the middle of that line, make a mark and label it zero, or more specifically, year zero. Now, that year zero is arguably one of the most important dates in all of human history. You see, year zero marks the generally agreed upon year of the birth of Jesus Christ. So what we're creating here is a timeline a way to mark events as they occur in history. And here's how it works. Anything happening to the left of that line, or before the zero, is referred to as BC, or BCE. So if something happened five years before the zero date, 
or before the birth of Christ, it's said to have happened in the year 5 B.C., the B.C. standing for before Christ. Now, at some point, historians decided to take the religious aspect out of things and came up with the term B.C.E., which means before common era. So 5 B.C. and 5 B.C.E. mean exactly the same thing when you hear them. And so on the other side of that timeline, with zero still representing the birth of Jesus, everything that happened since then, or to the right of that zero, is said to have happened in A.D., which is Latin and means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And once again, at some point, historians decided to take the religious aspect of things out of it and came up with the term CE, meaning Common Era. So the year we're currently in, 2023, in history would be referred to as 2023 or 2,023 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. So now that we've got an understanding of that, let's continue with our story. The tablets that contain the Atrahasis epic are said to have been written around 1800 BCE, which is fascinating in itself. And now that we know how historical time is kept, we can appreciate that these tablets of stone are an astounding 4,000 years old. Now, they weren't hermetically sealed or in any climate-controlled chamber. They were found in the ruins of ancient cities, in the very bosom of the earth, kissed by the desert sun for thousands of years. You know, we often think of ourselves as being more advanced than ancient civilizations, and in many ways we are. Our technologies have brought incredible advancements and conveniences to our lives. But despite all of our digital wonders, like hard drives and data storage, there is something truly remarkable about the enduring legacy of ancient civilizations. Think about it. Those stone tablets, carved with ancient wisdom, have withstood the test of time for thousands of years, weathering the elements, including the harsh desert sands, and still retain their knowledge and insights. Now, on the other hand, our modern digital storage devices like tapes, CDs, and hard drives, as advanced as they may be, are fragile and susceptible to decay and becoming obsolete. They just can't survive for millennia like those stone tablets have. So in a world where information is easily lost and technology becomes obsolete, there's a certain beauty in the lasting power of those ancient stone tablets. They serve as a reminder that true endurance lies not just in the complexity of our inventions, but in the choice of materials that can withstand the ravages of time. But just how did our ancient ancestors know that record-keeping in stone was the most efficient way to keep things preserved? Now, for some additional perspective, Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Bible, is generally accepted to have been written during the 5th or 6th century BCE. So that means that these tablets containing the Epic of Atrahasis are older than the book of Genesis by several hundred centuries. Is the Genesis account and the tale of Noah just another repackaged version of the flood inspired by Atrahasis? Just who was the god or gods responsible for the flood? Were they of divine origin or were they otherworldly? Well, we're going to take a look at all of that and then some. Trust me, this is an episode you don't want to miss. Our journey begins in the Ashmolean Museum at the University of London in Oxford, 
where among an extensive collection of cuneiform tablets cataloged as accession number 1889.208, you'll find a series of ancient stone tablets written in cuneiform containing the old Babylonian version of the epic of Atrahasis. Now we're going to pick up our story after the gods have created humans in Tablet 2, which details the population growth of the humans and the fact that with this population boom, the humans have become too noisy for the gods. And because of this noise, the meeting of the Council of Gods was called. Imagine a divine council with gods clad in ancient regalia, their voices booming and thundering through the heavens. It's here where we'll meet the three main characters of our story. Among the members of this council are two brothers, highly important gods. First, there's Enlil, who was considered the chief god. He was associated with air, wind, and earth, what the ancients would call a storm god, if you will. Now, his brother Enki, on the other hand, was associated with water, knowledge, mischief, and creation, and was considered the god of wisdom. And as the creator of mankind, he would also become the protector of humanity. And lastly, we have our protagonist, Atrahasis, whose name in Akkadian means exceedingly wise. Now, he's described as a righteous and wise man whose fate is about to take a dramatic turn. So during this Council of the Gods meeting, which included other gods, by the way, the chief god Enlil complained to the council that the humans had become too many and were noisy, and because of this, he could not sleep. Here's an excerpt. The country was as noisy as a bellowing bull. Enlil made his voice heard and spoke to the great gods. The noise of mankind has become too intense for me, and with their uproar, I am deprived of sleep. Now, as the chief god, the leader of the council, what is his solution? Let's listen in. Cut off food supplies to the people. Let the vegetation be too scant for their hunger. Let Adad, the storm god, withhold his rain. And below, let the flood not come up from the abyss. Let the wind blow and parch the ground. Let the clouds thicken but release no rain. Let the womb be too tight for one to carry pregnancy. Give the order that Surupu disease shall break out. By the Surupu disease, let the population be thoroughly thinned out. So this council of gods, via Enlil's decree, agrees to essentially call the human population. Now they first tried to do this with famines and droughts unleashed upon humanity, and again with plagues, which the tablets named Surupu. But each time they tried, Inki, the protector, the benefactor of humans, Help the humans to survive. When Enlil sends a plague to reduce the human population, Enki instructs Atrahasis to have the people stop praying to their personal gods and have them offer sacrifices to the god causing the plague, Namtar. This appeases Namtar and he, quote, wipes away his hand and the plague is lifted. During the drought, similar to the previous calamities, Enki instructs Atrahasis to again have the people stop praying to their personal gods and make sacrifices to the rain god causing the drought, Adad. Again, this appeases Adad, and he ends the drought. 
Now, when Enlil sends the famine, things get pretty bad. And here's what the tablet says happened. When the second year arrived, they had depleted the storehouses. When the third year arrived, the people's looks were changed by starvation. When the fourth year arrived, their upstanding bearing bowed. Their well-set shoulders slouched. The people went out in public hunched over. When the fifth year arrived, a daughter would eye her mother coming in. A mother would not even open her door to her daughter. When the sixth year arrived, they served up a daughter for a meal, served up a son for food. So by that time, things had gotten pretty bad that they had resorted to cannibalism. Now, this time, Inky helps the humans and lets loose a large quantity of fish to feed the starving people. That ends the famine, and well, as you can imagine, Enlil was furious, as they had all agreed on the plan to cull the human population. And so Enlil, in his position as chief god, decides to send a great flood to wipe out humanity. And this time, the gods take an oath not to get involved. Now true to his nature, as being cunning and wise, Inki finds a loophole and takes a more direct approach. He appears to Atrahasis in a dream and instructs him to build a large boat to save himself, his family, and some animals. Now by appearing to Atrahasis in the dream, Inki has not broken his oath to not get involved in the affairs of the humans. Now, at this point, it's important to understand the concept of godship from the viewpoint of the ancient Sumerians. To us, God is something ethereal, abstract, akin to a grandfather with a long white beard that sits on an invisible throne in the sky. But to the ancients, the gods were fleshly beings that they lived amongst and whom they served, worshipped, fed with sacrifices, and tended to. And if you need further proof of that, listen to what happens during and immediately after the flood. Like a wild ass screaming, the winds howled. The darkness was total. There was no sun. As for Nintu, the great mistress, her lips became encrusted with rhyme. The great gods, the Anuna, stayed parched and famished. The goddess watched and wept. The great mother goddess complains bitterly about Enlil and Anu's shortcoming as decision makers, and she weeps for the dead humans who, quote, clogged the river like dragonflies. So now we see it's the gods' turn to go hungry. Like sheep, they could only fill their windpipes with bleeding. Thirsty as they were, their lips discharged only the rhyme of famine. After seven days and nights of rain, the flood subsides, and Atrahasis disembarks and offers a blood animal sacrifice. The hungry gods smell the fragrance and gather, quote, like flies over the offering. So here we get a glimpse into the relationship that the Sumerians had with their gods. These gods, who were described as starving and thirsty with parched lips, who, upon smelling the fragrance of burnt flesh, gathered like flies over the offering. This doesn't seem very godlike to us, but to the Sumerians, this was the status quo. Now, lifting the veil on this story, it's interesting to me, and I often wonder about the fact that throughout the Old Testament, Blood sacrifices of animals were definitely a thing. 
And we can see the origins of that here. But somewhere between the original story as written on the tablets and the Genesis account several centuries later, some aspects of Godship had changed. From a pantheon of polytheistic gods who very much enjoyed the taste of animal blood sacrifices to a monotheistic god that still required sacrifices and just observes the burnt offerings from afar without salivating over them. Now, we know that the Atrahasis account came before Genesis, so why the change in the story? The biggest being from a pantheon of gods to a single god. And who changed it? It's questions like this that we simply can't ignore. So meanwhile, Enlil spots the boat and is furious, knowing that only Inki could have been clever enough to come up with this new trick. Inki admits that he warned Atrahasis in defiance of Enlil. He says, quote, I made sure life was preserved. Well, the text is fragmentary at this point, but apparently Inky persuades Enlil to adopt a more humane plan for dealing with the population and noise problem. Inky and the womb goddess Nintu decide that henceforth, one-third of the women will not give birth successfully. What they call a Pasitu demon will snatch the baby from its mother's lap. They also created several classes of temple women or priestesses who were not allowed to have children. Now, after some time, as in Genesis, the storm subsides, Atrahasis' boat settles on solid ground, and as life begins anew, the first thing he does is offer a sacrifice to the hungry gods. And that's where the tale concludes. But it's where our story begins as we go behind the veil and examine the possibility that these gods were actually an advanced race of beings. Zachariah Sitchin was a controversial author known for his alternative theories on ancient Sumeria and the origins of humanity. He put forth the viewpoint that the two gods, Enlil and Inki, belonged to a group of deities known as the Anunnaki, that they were actual extraterrestrial beings who visited Earth in ancient times. You see, Tablet 1 of the Atrahasis epic describes how Inki and the other gods created humans by infusing their DNA with the DNA of the bipedal hominids that were on the earth at that time. Could this be why the gods of the Atrahasis appeared to be more human, with human needs like the need for food? Because they were in fact partly human? Sitchin believed that the Atrahasis was a historical document that recounted events of ancient ET intervention in human affairs. He argues that the Anunnaki genetically manipulated early humans to create a slave race for mining gold and other resources. And to his credit, when you read the translation of the tablets, which are readily available online, he certainly makes a compelling case. He also suggested that the Anunnaki's advanced technology and knowledge were responsible for the various achievements of ancient civilizations, including the construction of monumental structures like the pyramids. Could they have been responsible for Noah's Ark? Think about it. Atrahasis and Noah were both given specific dimensions and materials to build with. Could this knowledge have been advanced engineering, passed down from an ancient advanced civilization? Or perhaps Noah and Atrahasis themselves possessed this knowledge because they themselves were otherworldly. You see, here's the thing. Someone or something giving you instructions on how to build a boat and you're actually building it 
getting everything right, and that vessel being seaworthy enough to survive a global catastrophic flood? Kind of makes you wonder. Also, the parallels between the Genesis account of Noah and the Atrahasis epic are quite remarkable. In Genesis, we read that God directly spoke to Noah, giving him precise instructions. However, in the Atrahasis account, it's Enki who appears to Atrahasis, but not in the same tangible way as in Genesis. Enki reveals himself through a dream. What's fascinating is how different cultures perceive and interpret divine communication. Now, in our modern times, if someone were to claim that God spoke to them, it would definitely raise a few eyebrows and most likely lead to a psychiatric evaluation. But in ancient times, even in the Bible, encounters with the divine were seen as commonplace. Now, UFO abductees today uniformly recount that when abducted, the ETs communicate with them non-verbally, that they just hear them in their head. Could that explain how Enki communicated with Atrahasis? And how the God of the Bible communicated with Noah? But what about Noah and Atrahasis themselves? Could they have been ETs? Well, for this, I want to turn your attention to the apocryphal book of Enoch, where Enoch was describing what I myself can only describe as the strange birth of Noah. Here's what Enoch, Noah's great-grandfather, says about Noah's birth. And after some days, my son Methuselah took a wife for his son Lamech, and she became pregnant by him and bore him a son. And his body was as white as snow and red as the blooming of a rose, and the hair of his head and his long locks were white as wool, and his eyes beautiful. And when he opened his eyes, he illuminated the whole house like the sun, and the whole house was very bright. And thereupon he arose in the hands of the midwife, opened his mouth, and conversed with the Lord of Righteousness. And his father Lamech was afraid of him, and fled, and came to his father Methuselah, and said to him, I have begotten a strange son. He is not like a man, but resembles the children of the angels of heaven, and his nature is different, and he is not like us, and his eyes are as the rays of the sun, and his face is glorious." So let's examine this. His body was described as being as white as snow with a beautiful rosy red glow. Can you imagine a newborn baby with such a radiant aura? But that's not all. Noah's hair at birth was said to be as white as wool with long locks. Newborn babies, human newborn babies that is, are typically born bald. And in the cases where they are born rather hairy, it would be highly unusual to be born with long locks. And his eyes? Oh yes, his eyes. Imagine witnessing the birth of a child who lights up the entire room with their presence. And we're not talking figuratively. Enoch says when he opened his eyes, he illuminated the whole house like the sun, and the whole house was very bright. That is absolutely amazing. Now here's where things really get intriguing. As soon as Noah opened his mouth, he quote, began conversing with the Lord of Righteousness. Just imagine a newborn baby having a deep and meaningful conversation with the divine. And we know that it was a conversation because Enoch 
Noah's great-grandfather. You have to imagine that he's seen a few births, children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He didn't say that Noah began babbling. He said he opened his mouth and he began conversing with the Lord of Righteousness. His birth was so weird, in fact, that his own father, Lamech, described his son as someone who didn't quite fit the mold of an ordinary human. Noah's appearance, his nature, everything about him seemed different. Lamech even compared Noah to the children of heavenly angels, emphasizing his unique and extraordinary qualities. Now, who were the children of the heavenly angels? Well, that's a story for another episode in itself. But the icing on the cake to me is when you begin to connect the dots. You see, Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. Enoch is one of only two persons that the Bible mentions ever having gone up into heaven without dying. In fact, in the book of Enoch, Enoch travels to and from the heavens at will. Is it just a coincidence that his great-grandson is able to, quote, converse with the Lord at birth, light up the entire house with his eyes, and make his grandfather so afraid that he runs away. And oh, he just happens to be the one selected to save humanity and is a master shipbuilder on the very first try. That's a lot to swallow, friends. The Atrahatus epic and the Book of Enoch are but glimpses into a world far more mysterious and wondrous than we can ever imagine. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again next week for another edition of The Veiled Chronicles as we continue our journey into the unknown and sometimes unexplained.